Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Congress and the President crunched the numbers and came up with a compromise. There are winners and losers. I think that as the American people understand that oil and gas companies were protected in this budget, but programs to ensure that their air and their water uh, are clean and safe uh, weren't, that there will be backlash. Also, the human costs of America's addiction to fossil fuels and a sleuth net's one of the most successful smugglers of butterflies. There was one called Napache fritillary, which is one of California's largest and prettiest butterflies that's on this restricted range of the Sierra Eastern Slope. He caught 500 of them in two days and shipped them to Japan for sale. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Under the threat of shutting down the government, Republican budget negotiators set their sights on certain green programs. Prime targets, the EPA, climate-related funding, and public lands. Now with the details of how the last-minute deal affects environmental line items in the budget, here's Living on Earth's Mitra Taj. Hi, Mitra. Hi, Steve. So Congress cut about $40 billion from the budget this year. As I understand it, that's the biggest single non-military budget cut in history. And environmental programs, well, right up on the chopping block. Yes. A lot of environmental programs carried a disproportionately large share of the cuts. Overall, the budget was cut by just 1 percent, but the EPA's budget was cut by 16 percent. And much of that came from programs that promote clean water and clean air. Also, Department of Energy's funding for energy efficiency and renewable energy shrunk by 20% to $1.8 billion. Research and development for fossil fuels was cut also, but only by half that amount. Amitra, what about the Department of Interior? I know efforts there to regulate the offshore oil and gas industry saw an uptick in the amount of dough they're getting, but other interior programs didn't get off so easy, huh? They did not. Uh, Interior now has a third less to spend on buying land in order to conserve it. And when it comes to the land that the federal government already owns, it might be harder to track the flora and fauna that live there. The budget zeroed out funding for the Wildlands Initiative, which was going to help identify special places for protection, but which Republicans feared would lead to fencing out development. Congressman Mike Simpson, the Republican chair of the House Interior and Environment Appropriations Subcommittee, also said spending money on the Wildlands Program would probably just go towards fending off lawsuits from energy companies. And he led efforts to make even deeper cuts to both Interior and to the EPA. And when Democrats railed against those proposals, he had this to say. I will tell you the outrage here is that we are having to do this because the majority, the former majority, when they had the majority in the House, the majority in the Senate and the White House, failed to pass an appropriation bill. They left the American people in this country with this pile of crap. They should not complain about how we try to clean this up. Whoa, I guess passions were running high there, huh? Yeah. Now, um, Congressman Simpson is from Idaho. That's a state that is very concerned about its population of gray wolves. And as I understand it, uh, the congressman pushed through an amendment that takes the Rocky Mountain gray wolf off of the endangered species list? 
Exactly. That ended up being in the final deal. Um, the gray wolf, as you know, was brought back into the wild 16 years ago. And whether it should be protected has been the subject of a slew of lawsuits over the years. So in passing this amendment, Congress has essentially legislated a species out of endangered status without a scientific or legal review. Now, what about those other amendments, those other riders that had nothing to do with the budget, the ones that would have restricted the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act? Well, the rider that would have blocked the EPA's climate authority was part of why budget negotiations got so close to a a government shutdown. Democrats ended up standing their ground and managed to strip it out of the final deal at the very last minute, which made many climate advocates very happy. But some environmental groups weren't as pleased with the rest of the deal and not just what got cut, but what didn't get cut. The tax credit for ethanol was left untouched, as was the some $4 billion a year we spent on oil and gas subsidies. Here's Adam Colton with the National Wildlife Federation. If we eliminate tax breaks for oil and gas companies, we could save $46.2 billion over the next 10 years. So when you start talking about taking you know, nearly $2 billion out of the Environmental Protection Agency budget, $4.7 billion from four service operations, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it doesn't really pass the smell test to make the argument that everybody's got to bear the burden of making these cuts when you know that wasn't the case, that corn ethanol subsidies were left intact, that oil and gas subsidies were left intact. Mitra, now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration lost $142 million in funding and will have to put on hold a program that hasn't even gotten off the ground yet, the Climate Service. That's right, Steve. The the Climate Service lost its funding for the rest of the year, and some suspect that it might have been targeted in particular because it has the word climate in its name. Programs related to climate change in all federal agencies lost 13% of their funding. And, you know, the Climate Service was actually NOAA Administrator Jane Lubchenco's vision for drawing what's known about climate change from a number of federal programs into one place so that people across the country could plan for the future. She spoke to Living on Earth about it in 2009. We need a National Climate Service to provide the kind of information that citizens, policymakers, uh, and the private sector are already asking for. How will climate change affect my interests and my businesses, uh, my recreational opportunities in my backyard? Currently, there's no one place they can go. And so there's still no one place they can go. And Mitra, I guess this is far from Washington's last word on the budget. These and other programs can be restored or chopped further in just a few months. Yes, this budget just funds the government for the rest of this fiscal year, which means just till the end of September. Republicans have put out their proposed budget for 2012, which calls for even deeper cuts to environmental initiatives and fewer restrictions on oil and gas drilling. And President Obama is still asking Congress to make bolder investments in clean energy and to leave the EPA's climate authority alone. So we'll have to see what happens. But I think when you look at the compromises achieved in this budget, it's pretty clear that a lot of common ground will be found in spending less on environmental programs. Living on Earth, Mitra Taj in Washington. Thank you, Mitra. You're welcome, Steve. It's now official. The disaster at the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan has been raised to the highest level of atomic crisis, on par with Chernobyl. Chernobyl and the meltdown at Three Mile Island a few years earlier derailed the U.S. nuclear industry. Over the past three decades, not a single new reactor has been built here. But now, even in the shadow of Fukushima, in the United States, a nuclear renaissance is in the making. In fact, it's on the fast track. 
The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is just days away from closing public comment and approving an innovative design for a new nuclear plant, the AP-1000. It's being built by Westinghouse, which is owned by the Japanese company Toshiba. Westinghouse Electric Company, the pioneer in nuclear energy, once again sets a new industry standard with the introduction of the AP-1000, the safest and most economical nuclear power plant available in the worldwide commercial marketplace. The pressurized water reactor at the heart of the AP-1000 has been used in scores of nuclear plants over the decades. What's new is the building surrounding the reactor and the safety features built into it. Ed Cummins is vice president and chief technologist for Westinghouse. The typical plants uh, in the U.S. are about twice as good as the NRC requirement. And the AP-1000 is 200 times as good, so 100 times better than the current operating plants. So what makes this the safest and most economical nuclear power plant in worldwide commercial marketplace? I think the biggest distinction of the AP-1000 is that it is passively safe. So all of the things that challenge the reactor system are mitigated by natural phenomena like gravity and um, evaporation and condensation and natural processes. No AC power is required. In an accident, a giant tank above the AP-1000 reactor filled with three-quarters of a million gallons of water would drip down, cooling off the core. For three days, gravity, not electricity, would do the job. It was the failure of the backup diesel generators and batteries that led to the disaster at Fukushima. Cummins says that wouldn't happen with the AP-1000. There would be no core damage. There would be no spent fuel damage, no radiation emitted, no evacuation. None of the aspects of the Fukushima accident would have occurred with the AP-1000. Safer, says Cummins, and cheaper. The massive safety shield building surrounding the nuclear components of the AP-1000 will be built using prefab Lego-like blocks, dramatically cutting on-site costs. And so if you uh, build um, uh, portions of the plant in a factory and you ship those portions uh, to the site, then that's a lot less work and a lot less time that occurs on the site to build the plant. Westinghouse has already shipped four AP-1000s to China. A Chinese video shows a huge reactor vessel under construction. Here in the United States, utilities in the southeast have ordered six AP-1000s. However, before construction can begin, the NRC has to give final approval to the design. But critics charge in cutting costs to build the AP-1000, Westinghouse has cut corners on safety. The AP-1000 might be considered safe as long as it remains on the drawing board and nobody actually tries to build one. Jim Warren is executive director of NC Warren. It's part of an alliance of anti-nuclear organizations that's petitioned the NRC to slow down the approval of the AP-1000. Over the years, the NRC sent Westinghouse designers back to the drawing boards 18 times, saying the reactor safety shield building didn't meet fundamental engineering standards. But now the NRC concludes there's, quote, reasonable assurance that the revised design can be built without undue risk to the health and safety of the public. But not everyone at the NRC agrees. Dr. John Ma the commission's most senior reactor structural engineer in charge of evaluating the shield building, has written a strongly worded report charging that the safety shield isn't ductile. It won't bend under stress, and that could lead to catastrophe. 
Dr. Ma declined to talk to us, but here's Jim Warren of NC Warren paraphrasing his official report. Dr. Ma says in particular that they have underestimated earthquake risks, and he says that the material they're proposing to use would be too brittle and would, in his words, shatter like a glass cup. Shatter like a glass cup. What does he mean by that? Do you know? He's saying that instead of tornado-driven missile poking a hole in the building, it would be so brittle it would shatter and collapse. Well, that's not true. Ed Cummins of Westinghouse. Imagine this building. It's got on uh, each side three-quarter inches of steel, and then it has three feet of uh, concrete between them. It's impossible to imagine that that is going to fail like a glass. The NRC commissioners agree with Westinghouse. Despite Dr. Ma's objections, the overall conclusion of the NRC is that the AP-1000 design meets federal safety standards. Thomas Bergman is the NRC's director of engineering. The shatter like a glass cup isn't a good analogy. The steel itself is very ductile, and it wouldn't really shatter. So how do you resolve something like that? I mean, Dr. Ma is a a very senior person at the NRC. That's why we have uh, the non-concurrence process. And the agency, I don't know how familiar you are with our structure, but we have what we call the Advisory Committee on Reactor Safeguards. Yeah, ACRS. They also independently assessed the design and hired their experts. And their letter on the SHIELD building is publicly available, where they also agree with the staff's conclusions regarding the AP-1000 SHIELD building. The NRC does acknowledge that the AP-1000 could be built stronger and more ductile but it's not necessary to meet current safety standards. Again, Westinghouse Vice President Ed Cummins. Yes, I suppose that you could build anything stronger. There is really not a uh, justification for building it stronger when we have built it strong enough. Opponents aren't giving up. They're asking the NRC to delay final approval of the AP-1000 design. Jim Warren of NC Warren says public safety is at risk. And so is more than $8 billion in federal construction loan guarantees that is going to the Southeast Utilities that have ordered AP-1000s. The NRC has to require a return to safety being the priority at these plants and stop putting economics as the priority. That's the only reason why all these companies chose the AP-1000 across the U.S. South. And yet they still are running into massive cost overruns. The NRC expects to grant final approval to Westinghouse's AP-1000 design sometime this summer, with construction to begin soon after. Just ahead, breast cancer and DDT. We update our story from 20 years ago with some surprising findings. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. In the United States, one woman in eight can expect to get breast cancer, a higher rate than any previous generation. Only half the cases can be attributed to known risk factors such as genetics, so researchers have been investigating environmental exposure to get more answers. Back in 1991, when Living on Earth began, only a few scientists were looking at whether pesticides and other environmental toxins might play a role in breast cancer. A pioneering study at the time had found breast cancer incidents declined in Israel after the pesticides lindane and DDT were banned from dairy production in 1978. 
One of our early shows explored the link between these chemicals and breast cancer. In a few minutes, we'll check in with one of those scientists we spoke with back then. But first, here's an excerpt from our 1991 story by reporter Tatiana Schreiber. What's needed, scientists say, are studies that directly measure chemical residues in women who have breast cancer compared with those who don't. One researcher who has done just this is Dr. Mary Wolfe, a chemist at New York's Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Wolfe recently completed a pilot study with Dr. Frank Falk at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. Their report will be published later this year in the Archives of Environmental Health. She used techniques developed over years of studying how the body stores chemicals to measure pesticide residues in breast fat. This was a case control study of a small number of of women um, in which we measured a number of pesticide residues and found that some of them were elevated in cases with malignant compared with non-malignant disease. The study involved 25 women with breast cancer and an equal number who had biopsies but didn't have cancer. Their results showed differences significant enough to interest the government's National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences, which will fund a larger study, a collaboration between Wolf at Mount Sinai and Dr. Paolo Toniolo, an epidemiologist at New York University's School of Medicine. Wolf and Toniolo will be looking at DDE, which is a metabolite of the pesticide DDT, and PCBs, a common industrial chemical, both in the organochlorine class of chemicals. They were found at higher levels among the women with breast cancer in the pilot study and are widely dispersed in the environment. The organochlorine pesticides, like DDT, were widely used in the United States from the 1940s through the 1970s. Though still used in the Third World, most have been banned in this country because of their high toxicity and evidence that they're carcinogenic in animals. They tend to accumulate in the food chain and concentrate in animal fat and milk. Mary Wolf. They're stored in fat and um, stay around, some of them, we think, for a person's lifetime. PCBs and DDT, if they have a role in carcinogenesis, are thought to be promoters. That is, that they will take an initiating event and carry it along the road to cancer. That could happen a number of ways. Wolf says DDT and its metabolites are estrogenic, That is, they could act like estrogen is thought to in promoting tumor growth. The organochlorines also affect an important system of enzymes in the body. The Israeli investigators think these changes could promote tumor growth itself or deactivate the immune system or destroy anti-cancer medications. The fact that levels of pesticide residues found in human adipose tissue in the United States has been decreasing since the 1970s while the breast cancer rate continues to rise, seems to contradict the Israeli observations. But New York University's Paolo Toniolo points out that the chemicals could act differently at different exposure levels, and they're unlikely to act alone. It's probably a complex uh, interaction, if you allow me, between chemicals in the environment, endogenous hormones, uh, dietary factors that all concurrently act in a very complex way and, and uh, ultimately will lead to a malignant transformation and uh, tumor. Toniolo adds that process could take 20 to 30 years and age at exposure to chemicals in the environment is probably important. 
He also emphasizes that different individuals may be more or less predisposed to developing cancer. In the new study, Toniolo will add pesticide exposure to factors he's examining in ongoing research involving 15,000 women attending a breast cancer screening clinic in New York. Wolf and Toniolo's new study will measure chemical residues in blood samples in a large population of women, and it takes into consideration reproductive factors, dietary habits, family history of cancer, and levels of hormones in the body. Results should be available in about a year. We've been listening to an excerpt of a piece by reporter Tatiana Schreiber back in September of 1991 on Living on Earth, and we decided to catch up now with Dr. Mary Wolf. She's a professor of preventive medicine and oncological sciences at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Dr. Wolf, welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you. So, what happened? I mean, when we first interviewed you for that story back in 1991, you had just completed that pilot study on pesticide residues in breast fat, and we're about to start that larger study that looked at DDE and PCBs and possible links to breast cancer. What did you find? Right. Well, that was a study with Dr. Toniolo. It was published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute in 1993, and it made a huge splash.、Um, it was one of the most cited papers of the 1990s, and led to a bunch of copycat research investigations by me, among others, in different populations. And most of those were negative or、uh, had very small effects. And so, over what's been almost 20 years now, right? The consensus is that those chemicals probably have very little impact on breast cancer risk. So, bottom line, DDT doesn't cause breast cancer, at least as far as you and others have been able to tell. Right. There are a couple of papers that that suggest that if it had been measured early in life, we might be better able to establish risk. But using the current technology and currently exposed populations, I don't think that it's considered a big problem for breast cancer. So you come out saying, you know, folks, it's probably unlikely then that、uh, DDT is directly linked to breast cancer. How did people receive this news? Oh, well, there've been some very interesting responses. As I, I mean, scientists take it as you know, well, that's how it goes. On to the next project. But there've been some sort of.、Uh, Faint damnation type papers of you know undertaking foolish research and and you know following a wrong trail. But my my feeling is that it was a something that was worth pursuing and that it has led to other studies on on the effects of pesticides on reproduction and other intermediate endpoints that might be related to cancer or to other chronic disease like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So, which pesticides, if any, do you think are linked to breast cancer? Well, actually,、um, now people look at this whole group of environmental chemicals that have hormonal activity, which again was cited as one of the mechanistic bases for those investigations. And what that work led us to was alluded to in your introduction to look at intermediate risk factors because if the window of exposure is long for cancer.、Um, Detection, then maybe the effects of environment happen earlier in life. So we got interested in events around puberty. You talked about the risk in terms of breast cancer. We we got to be very interested in that, and particularly in minorities because at Mount Sinai we serve a largely minority community. The black women in the United States get、uh, breast cancer. 
early onset breast cancer at a higher rate than white women. And of course, early onset breast cancer is the most aggressive. And at the same time, they also have earlier menarche than white women. So because environmental factors might be associated with all of those phenomena, we decided to look at exposures in the environment and their relationship to um, pubertal development in girls. Anything different you would do today with this research, knowing what you know? Well, one of the things that it's led me and others to understand is how to use these biomarkers. So in that interview, um, Tatiana Schreiber was saying that, that what we thought was that the best way to measure environmental exposures which was to measure the actual levels in the body. One thing that that study and the many others that followed have taught us is that we don't totally appreciate how long these chemicals stay in the body, and what factors affect elimination and persistence. So there's a very interesting body of literature on that for DDT and related chemicals that I think may be valuable in using biomarkers. So I think maybe we were a little too simplistic just because of lack of knowledge about how to use those measurements. And today, in fact, technology is driving a lot of measurements of environmental biomarkers some of which are probably um, not based in good exposure science. So in other words, you're saying chemical residues in a woman's body doesn't automatically predict disease. Well, I want to thank you very much for helping us update our story from 20 years ago. Thank you. Dr. Mary Wolf is a professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and directs the Center for Children's Environmental Health and Disease Prevention Research. Winners of the prestigious Goldman Prize have just been announced. The Goldman is given to environmental activists around the world. This year, winners of the $150,000 prizes include an Indonesian environmentalist who protected the drinking water of 3 million people from industrial pollution. Africa's winner worked to protect the critically endangered black rhino. And in Europe, the Goldman Prize has gone to an electricity rebel. Uzo Slotik, organizer of Germany's first cooperatively owned renewable power company. Slotik is the mother of five children whose environmental activism started 25 years ago, a few days after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Ms. Slotik, welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. Congratulations. This is a big deal. It's like the Nobel Prize of the environmental movement. Yes, I, I know, and I'm so uh, being so overwhelmed to getting this prize well, that I nearly can't uh, express it. So take me back. April 26, 1986, Chernobyl erupts. Where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking? Well, I was at home in Chernobyl, and, you know, with five small children, I was very concerned because Germany was also polluted by this um, disaster. Uh, we did not know what could the children eat, what could the kids go out in the garden as they used to do. We knew we had to do something. So what did you do? Well, we had at first to educate ourselves. And we learned that energy waste is a real great problem. We started on the demand side because we were all energy consumers uh, and tried to save energy uh, as much as we could in our little group, which we called Parents for a Nuclear Free Future. And when we saw that we could save up to 50% electricity, um, we wanted the whole town to do the same. 
So we had to have an idea how to motivate the people. And our idea was to make energy-saving competitions. One should save as much energy as he could within a year, and then the people who saved most could get prizes. What were the prizes? Um, a holiday in Italy with your whole family, or tickets for the railway. Well, quite interesting things. You weren't satisfied with uh, consumers being more energy efficient. You went after the electric company. Yes, we had Uh, in 1990, the idea to overtake the grid so that we could set the basic conditions ourselves. This was a crazy idea because uh, we were only citizens, you know. It took us seven years, and at the 1st July 1997, we overtook the local grid, and since then, we run the grid ecologically, all Schönau electricity consumers have only um, renewable energy and cogeneration energy and no nuclear energy, no coal energy. And we are doing uh, a lot for um, energy efficiency. How did you take over the grid? Well, you know, in Germany, communities give a treaty every 20 years. Uh, who should operate the grid. Our treaty with the regional grid operator was expiring and he wanted to have a new treaty, of course, uh, but he did not want to have any ecological sounds in his treaty. Uh, and that was why we said, well, we do not want to sign this treaty. But it was quite a difficult thing because we had to won two referendums to um, buy the grid. The um, grid operator uh, wanted to have a lot more money for his grid than it was worth. How much did he want? He wanted uh, nearly 9 million Deutschmark. In euro, it's, it's 4 million 500 euro more than double the price the grid was worth. So where did you get the money from? There were many people all over Germany who said, well, that's such a wonderful project, we want to take part in it. So we had a German-wide campaign. We sold shares because within six weeks we had the first million and at July 1997 we overtook the grid. So now you've got an electricity co-op. Yes, more than a thousand people own the cooperative. We think it is very uh, important to have the citizens with you because the change of energy supply is such a great task. Uh, it cannot be achieved by power supplies, by uh, governments alone. You, you must have the citizens with you. So as I understand it, you and your um, your little band of electricity rebels have started a, a real movement throughout Germany now. Yes, that's right. We now have more than 110,000 customers, and not only households, but also large factories, industrialized companies. Uh, we support communities who want to overtake their own grid. I think we are quite a model uh, for changing energy supply in Germany. Well, Ms. Lodek, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks as well.
Uzula Slotik is one of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Richard and Rhoda Goldman established the prize in 1989. Rhoda Goldman died in 1996, and as this year's recipients were being selected, Richard passed away. He was 90 years old. My late wife and I had always had an interest in the environment. One overall goal is that people will become so aware of their environment that they will do everything in their power to protect it. Ours is a very simple idea. We'd like to leave the world a little better than we found it. Rhoda and Richard Goldman searched for the unsung heroes of the environment, annually honoring activists who made a difference on each of the six inhabited continents. I met him a couple of times. He was a fun-loving activist who was visibly excited in the company of the winners of his prize. A Republican in politics, a philanthropist at heart, Richard Goldman loved the great outdoors. And as often as not, he got there in his little Honda Civic Hybrid. Over the years, there have been 139 winners of the Goldman Prize. Perhaps the most famous is Wangari Mathai from Kenya, who later won the Nobel Peace Prize. Richard Goldman once said, I see this as the most meaningful philanthropy I've ever been involved in. It has a future value, and really, if I died now, I'd die with a smile. Coming up, a mystery writer goes undercover to track down a big-time smuggler of bugs and butterflies. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Poet T.S. Eliot wrote, April is the cruelest month, and this April brings cruel reminders of disasters a year ago in two important energy-producing regions of our country. It was on April 5, 2010, that Massey Energy's Upper Big Branch coal mine exploded in West Virginia. It was the nation's worst mining disaster in 40 years. Then on April 20th, the BP Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in flames and sank in the Gulf of Mexico, triggering our biggest oil spill. Those twin disasters, just 15 days apart, put in stark view the costs some places pay for the coal and oil we consume. Here's Living on Earth's Jeff Young. A year ago this month, 40 men went to work to bring energy to America, and they never came back. 29 men died in the Upper Big Branch Mine, 11 died on the Deepwater Horizon rig. At memorial events this month, they're remembered as men of faith and family, small-town roots, and blue-collar pride. Here are two of those stories, as told by people left behind. Roy Wyatt Kemp of Jonesville, Louisiana, was 27. He worked for Transocean on the Deepwater Horizon. He had two children. Courtney Kemp is his widow. Brian and I actually started dating in high school. We were both 15, actually. We... You know, we're just high school sweethearts. We did everything together. Everybody says we grew up together. And then in um, 2004, we got married, and um, he just really, really enjoyed family and friends and just loved being with his girls. Gary Wayne Corals of Naoma, West Virginia, was 33. He worked for the Massey Energy subsidiary that ran the Upper Big Branch Mine. He had two children. 
His father, Gary Quarles, is also a miner. Gary Wayne had been in the mines for 13 years. He worked when he first came out of high school at a sawmill just for a little while. And then he went to work underground. He said, I've been in the mines crawling in mud, working in water up to my uh, waist. That's what you work in. But he he was about like me. He, he didn't mind it. You know, it takes a special kind of guy to be able to work out in the Gulf, and he loved his job. Uh, the oil field definitely has its ups and downs, you know. Of course, most of the guys hate being away from their family, but enjoy their time off. And he really enjoyed that and being able to hunt and fish and do whatever he wanted when he was at home and just really enjoyed the outdoors. And he has a duck dog, Ellie, as um, a chocolate lab that's, you know, pretty much his best friend rides around with him all the time and all that kind of stuff when he was at home. Me and him hunted a lot, turkey hunted and deer hunted. With me and him would die every day if we didn't have to work. He, The headstone that we got for him, it's a big buck mounted with a set of big horns and bears and turkeys and water running like a stream. But that was him. He loved it. Gary Quarles says there was never much question about what his son would do for a living. In the Coal River Valley, coal is what people do. Courtney Kemp says her husband's choices were limited, too. Well, you know, where we live, and um, we live in central Louisiana, and basically our state is um, the oil industry or agriculture. Um, you're walking down the road, you know, in, in our hometown, probably 80% of the men who live here work in the oil field in some shape or form. So that was nothing... Nothing new, nothing really, you know, special to us. You know, that's just the way of life. I'm looking at a mountaintop removal from my kitchen door. I mean, I don't want to see the mountains tore up, but when it comes right down to it, it's jobs. My dad was a coal miner. My two brothers was a coal miner. And my my two grandpas both were, were coal miners. And the, the uh, grandpa on my dad's side, he was killed in the coal mines. And uh, as as far as I, I know, it's always been coal mining, you know. But uh, then the explosion happened, and I ain't been back to work underground since. As far as I'm concerned, I've spent my last day underground for 34 years, and uh, I, I see a psychiatrist. And uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know, I've never been afraid to go underground. And uh, he said, it's not nothing to, about being afraid. It's it's up in your head, you know. It's 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 just things that that, uh, that just ain't right no more, you know. One of the hardest things that I did, you know, when when Transocean shipped me White's truck back, I um, it was a couple weeks before I would drive it, and um, I had to drive it to town and get some gas. And I opened up his gas tank, and on the, the actual 
gas lid, when you open it up, it says BP, and it has a BP symbol. And that, that would be very, very minute to anybody else. Like, people basically wouldn't even pay attention to that. But to me, I lost it right there. It was just gut-wrenching. Courtney Kemp remembering her husband, Wyatt, and Gary Quarles talking about his son, Gary. Two of the men lost in last year's disasters, two families that paid a price for energy that doesn't show up at the gas pump or on an electric bill. Next week, we'll hear how coal and oil have shaped the people and places that provide energy. Whether it's the Louisiana oil fields or coal fields in West Virginia, any place where you have a major extractive industry and that's the dominant industry in a place, then you're going to have the same situation. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. Jessica Spirit writes mysteries. She's the author of the Rachel Porter series, which features an agent for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who hunts down smugglers and poachers. Sometimes, though, a real-life story comes along that's even stranger than fiction, they say. That's the genesis of Spirit's new nonfiction sleuth story, Winged Obsession, the pursuit of the world's most notorious butterfly smuggler. She says writing this nonfiction thriller wasn't so different from writing her mysteries. All of my mysteries involved endangered species. My protagonist was a U.S. Fish and Wildlife special agent. Um, This is what I've done all my life. Even before writing mysteries, I was doing journalism. I was specializing in wildlife law enforcement and endangered species. So it's just taking it from one format to the next. The butterfly trafficking business is a pretty big business. What, uh... Some $200 million a year or something? Yeah, word has it it's $200 million a year. And when you start looking at the prices for butterflies, it begins to make sense. Queen Alexandra's, which are the big, beautiful bird wings, Papua New Guinea, they're the largest butterfly. They will go for $10,000 a pair. I've even heard of butterflies. Dealers have told me that it's nothing for obsessive collectors to spend $60,000 on butterflies. Whoa, who would pay yeah. 60 grand for a butterfly? I mean, who are these Somebody people? with a lot of money that is totally obsessed. I mean, there are crazy collectors out there. And these butterflies are dead. They are dead. You have to kill them almost immediately as soon as their wings open and begin to harden so that you have a perfect, perfect specimen with no scratches, no tears. And the only way to get that is to do it soon after they hatch. So tell me about this notorious butterfly smuggler. His name is Yoshi Kojima. He's a Japanese national. And Yoshi ended up coming over here after college, coming over to the United States. And he would prowl around national parks, um, especially around the northern rim of the Grand Canyon in the 90s. There's a butterfly called the Papilio Indra Kaibabensis, that they love in Japan. He would go into certain areas and he would just wipe them out. And it wasn't even that it was totally illegal to collect some of these. It was just the extent that Yoshi did it. 
he hammered away at legal U.S. butterflies. Uh, there was one called Napache fritillary, which is one of California's largest and prettiest butterflies that's on this restricted range of the Sierra Eastern Slope. He caught 500 of them in two days and shipped them to Japan for sale. Uh-huh. So Yoshi Kojima is the Mr. Big of the international butterfly trade. Yoshi was so famous. There's something called the Bug Fair that takes place every year in Los Angeles at the Museum of Natural History. And each wing of the museum, the bottom floor, is filled with vendors that are selling butterflies and bugs. Yoshi used to show up there, and everybody would gather around him because they knew, you know, underneath the table, he had all these illegal butterflies he was going to sell them. And you, the mystery writer, decide to follow a rookie agent with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, his name is what? Ed Newcomer. You didn't make yes. this up, right? No, no. Is that a perfect name or what? <laughs> you know. And this guy goes undercover to try to catch Yoshi Kojima. So what happens? Well, basically, his boss said, we're going to send you out there with a confidential informant who was another dealer. He'll be wired up during the bug fair. You just stand back and watch and see what goes on. And Ed was watching this whole thing. The dealer would go and talk to Yoshi, and then the dealer would go back to his own vendor table. And finally, Ed got really bored with just standing around, and he started going around the museum looking at all the vendors' tables, and naturally he's drawn to Yoshi where everybody else is. And he started asking Yoshi questions about butterflies and said he would like to collect butterflies. And Yoshi began a whole conversation with him, Ed went back, walking around again. At the end of the day, he feels a little tap on his shoulder, and he turns around, and there's Yoshi with a box of butterflies. And he says, here, this is to help you start your collection. And on top of the box was Yoshi's phone number. And he said, contact me. And so begins this uh, rookie agent. Uh, He goes undercover, first real big investigation. Um, I won't give away the secrets of this story, because you are a mystery storyteller, and you certainly crank in a fair amount of suspense, and the reader has to wonder what's going to happen next. I will give away a little bit that not only is this about butterflies, but there's something in here about sex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what what doesn't, you know, you need that for a good story, but I'll tell you, this story is so much stranger than fiction, the truth. I became obsessed with Yoshi, because it was such a dark quirky, weird tale. And the more I learned about this, the more obsessed I became with Kojima. And that's where it started getting interesting, because Kojima had already been in prison here in the States and was sent back to Japan and refused to speak to anyone. So you go to Japan to try to find Yoshi Kojima. Why Why did you go? The more I dug into this, I began to learn more and more about Yoshi that even law enforcement didn't know. And I began to meet some of his quirky friends and hearing other stories. And I felt the only way to end this story, for me to be satisfied that I had truly told this story, was to go and meet Yoshi. How could I not? How could he just be this mystery figure that I've seen on undercover Skype tapes? I studied those tapes for hundreds of hours. I knew him inside out. I knew every one of his lies. I had to put that period on the end of the sentence, and that was going to see Yoshi. And so I did go undercover, and I managed to stake him out, to quote-unquote bump into him, and become friends with him, Uh, where we would go out for coffee, we would go out for dinner, uh, to the point where he wanted me to be his liaison over here in the States for the illegal trade. And that's when it really started getting strange. All these years you've written mysteries, Mm -hmm. 
So you can never actually hop into the investigation of a mystery because it doesn't exist. It's your fantasy. Right. In this case, you decided really to become the gumshoe that you've been writing about. Yeah, I did. I mean, I live vicar- I have lived vicariously through Rachel Porter, my character, for years. And with each book that I've done, I've always gone out into the field, riding shotgun with an agent, learning the area, learning the problems, all about the endangered species there. And this was taking it, yes, this was taking it a step much further. And in a sense, I was a little bit scared by it, but I couldn't not do it. I have to ask you, so what did Yoshi Kojima say to you after he figured out that you, too, were, uh, you know, gaming him. Well, Steve, this is the interesting part. I, as far as I know, he, he has, and maybe he has figured it out now since this book came out, but he hadn't. Uh, what happened is I was feeling so guilty when I was doing this because he was actually being very nice to me. And I started thinking, how can I do this to this nice man? He's the one person in Japan who's befriended me. How do I betray him? And the last night that we went out to dinner, that's when he started saying, you know, I would really like to sell my butterflies on eBay, but I don't know how to work eBay. Do you know how to work eBay? Now, this guy knows how to work internet auction sites. He's got his stuff up all over Japan, everywhere. This is what he had done with Ed Newcomer, because he wanted Ed Newcomer to take the fall if he was caught. And suddenly I saw the same game happening. But what's not in the book is that when I came home, we continued to Skype for quite a while, until Yoshi began to push harder and harder and harder. He wanted me to get butterflies from dealers in the States here for him because dealers didn't want to deal with him anymore. They didn't, you know, he was a hot potato. So he figured I could get them, and he was going silly rules, silly regulations, don't worry, you'll never be caught. He wanted me to send them by express mail, and he would pay me by PayPal. And that's when I spoke to one of my friends who's an undercover agent, and he said, abort, get out enough. It's the end. And that's when my relationship with Yoshi came to an end. Jessica Spirit's new book is called Winged Obsession, the Pursuit of the World's Most Notorious Butterfly Smuggler. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lovett, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out Living on Earth's Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.